these words from Ephesians chapter 1 again, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Pray that the Lord will bless this word to us today. In the latter years of the 1400s and then following on into the 1500s and the 1600s, God began to bring just real change within the hearts of men within the church. Why he chose that time period and those men, we can't know, but he did. Had he been working in men's hearts in other time periods, in earlier generations, yes, I'm sure that he had been. But in these particular years, there seemed to be a time when God would describe, as, as he described in other places in Scripture, that there was a fullness of time. So in, in some manner, it was a fullness of time there in that hundred-year span and, and going on from there that devout men responded to the unction of God and then deeply spiritual changes began to really take place within the church. Who were those men and, and what were those changes? Well, the most prominent of the men who stepped forward and brought about those changes were men like Martin Luther. He was a Roman Catholic priest, a monk, and then a priest. And he was born in 1483. And to give you the time frame, it's right about just before Columbus came and founded America. So he was born in 1483 and he lived until 1546. And during that time, Martin Luther was led of the Holy Spirit in such a way that he began to discover truths in these scriptures that he had read so many, many times before. But he began to discover new truths that were coming forth from them, truths that he never imagined before. Truths that somehow, and, they, and this takes place with us, they are veiled from our eyes until a particular point in time. Well, that veil was lifted, and, and so truths like, such as those words in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let me read those for you. These words that changed his life completely. Listen to these words, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, why were those words so different? Well, for many years as a devoutly believing Catholic monk and priest, Martin Luther had accepted the Catholic traditions that embraced this belief that salvation could come only through works of penitence and through good deeds. Works of penitence and especially good deeds. But then during this time as he pursued the truth of God within these scriptures, 
new understanding of these particular words came to him, came to Martin Luther. Let me read those again. Verse 17 especially, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And there's a sense in which that is from first to last. Everything is faith from first to last. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Words that were simple. The just shall live by faith. Simple, but profound. He came to understand that salvation and eternal life was not a reward that a person earned by his or her works or through some other activities of the church or activities of life. But rather salvation and eternal life were unmerited, undeserved, free gifts from God. That salvation and eternal life was an unmerited and completely undeserved free gift from God. And it could only be received, as these words tell us, through faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. All of the requirements of God for eternal life was faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, Martin Luther did not understand at the time, but what he was bringing about in his new beliefs, and you've probably read the story of how he presented all this to Rome and to others in authority over him, and he was condemned for doing it. But he, by his actions, he began this avalanche of new doctrinal beliefs, beliefs that began a whole movement called the Protestant Reformation. And that became the beginning of all the church denominations that are common to us today. The Presbyterian, the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Assemblies of God, and on and on. What he did there, and what other men like him were doing, but him in particular, formed the basis of this Protestant Reformation. Again, he was not alone in this. There were other people that were involved and some of them to a great extent. And some of them had suffered quite a bit. Men like William Tyndale, John Knox, John Calvin, Jacobus Arminius, and then so many others. But of, of those men who were stepping on forward at that time, two in particular, John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius, they became zealous firebrands and through their teaching, they defined much of the Protestant doctrine and traditions that uh, we hold to in most all the churches that around us today. But I'd also want us to understand that during any kind of pioneering effort like this, when men are involved, their zealousness can also, and did at that time, bring about divisions within those Protestant ranks that were just beginning to blossom. And the major differences were developed right along the exact lines of the scripture text that we are dealing with here today in Ephesians chapter 1. And especially these words in verses 4 and 5 and in, in verse 11. Let me read those for you again. Verse 4, just as he, this is God, just as God chose us in him before 
the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the pleasure of his will. And then in verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now in particular, as I mentioned last week, it is the implication that is put forth within these two words, chosen and predestined, that bring the most controversy with the questioning centering around exactly when and by whom and in what context did our salvation actually take place. Who was it that made the choice when I was saved, when you were saved? I want to pause for a moment and say, though, that as these two men would appear to have and did clash, or at least their ideas did, John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius, even with all those differences, those were very devout men, godly men, men who had fully and completely surrendered their lives, their intellect, their wisdom to Christ, men who solemnly consecrated themselves to giving a correct and an accurate interpretation of these scriptures. But unfortunately, within their reading and their understanding and their zealousness for these scriptures, they developed just widely opposing viewpoints and beliefs. Now may I just simply present a question to us today, and we will consider it more at another time. But when we look at opposing viewpoints and especially these that are preached and taught by these men, and we'll discuss them in a moment. A question. Does opposing viewpoints, even as diverse as these two points of understanding that we have here today, does that make one of those viewpoints right and one of them wrong? Let me ask that in a different way. Must all opposing views always have a wrong view and a right view? Or could it be with the miraculous mysteries of God that all of this is a part of, might there be a more agreeable resolution than simply agreeing that one is right and one's wrong and each of us believing that the other one is wrong? Now, we'll leave the answer to that question for another day. Perhaps as we spend these weeks studying these scriptures, these two viewpoints will come a little closer together. And God will bring you and me some fresh understanding of his word. Now, as to those doctrines, one of those doctrines that was put forth by John Calvin is generally referred to as reform doctrine. And that is the tenet of that which we believe in this Presbyterian church. The second set of doctrines, the Arminian doctrines, they are the tenets that are set forth and, and subscribed to by the Methodists, the Baptists, the Charismatic, and many of the other churches that are around us. Now, let's also understand one other thing. 
as we examine this doctrine, it's good for you and me to understand and acknowledge that not all of the individuals that are within each of those churches in each of those denominations, that not each person subscribes word for word to the doctrine of their churches. And I would suggest that even in this church right here now, that we would not individually necessarily subscribe word for word to the Reformed doctrine. It is just the way of the hearts of men. We hold strongly to certain portions of it and then we waver on other portions of it. But as a general rule, those who do attend a Presbyterian church hold to Reformed doctrine. Those who attend a Methodist church hold to generally closely to the Methodist doctrine, the the Arminian doctrine. Now again, these two doctrines got set into place by these two men, or at least their followers. And especially in the case of Jacobus Arminius, it was his followers that actually put in writing what we would call the Arminian doctrine. What had taken place now, as a reminder, John Calvin lived earlier than did Jacobus Arminius. John Calvin lived in 1509 to 1564, and Arminius was born in 1560, and he lived to 1609. And so during the lifetime of John Calvin, he developed these five points that we have come to know know as the five points of Calvinism. Jacobus Arminius, objecting to the way that the Reformed theology was developing, he preached and he taught five articles of Arminianism. It's also called the Remonstrance. But five articles of Arminianism that would refute the five points of Calvinism. And they were intended as a direct refuting of them. Let me just give them to you, and if I, I'll just ask you to please bear with me because... They are tedious to read, but I'll just read an abbreviated version of them. So now you're going to have five points or five articles of Arminianism. And the first one says that God has decreed to save through Jesus Christ those of the fallen and sinful race who through the grace of the Holy Spirit believe in him, but leaves in sin the incorrigible and the unbelieving. Now, in these words and also other words that follow, the predestination that is mentioned here in Ephesians 1 and in other places in the scriptures is said to be conditioned. And it's conditioned upon God having beforehand seen how you and I would respond to the gospel. And then based upon him foreseeing, his foreknowledge of us, seeing that we would choose him, then he chose us. In other words, he waited for us to decide whether or not we would receive the gospel, and if we did, then he chose us. That's Article 1. Article 2, Christ died for all men, not just the elect, not just that he chose, but no one except a believer has an actual remission of sin. So while Christ died for everyone, only those who receive him can have actual remission of sin. Article 3. Man can neither of himself nor of his free will do anything truly good until he is born again of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. 
Article 4, all good deeds or movements within the regenerate heart must be ascribed to the grace of God by His grace, but His grace is resistible. In other words, though He draw us, though the Father draw us to His Son, we can resist those efforts. Article 5, those who are incorporated into Christ by a true faith have power given them through the assisting grace of the Holy Spirit to persevere in the faith. But it is possible for a believer to fall from grace. You can lose your salvation. Now, the five points of Calvinism that were being rebutted here in these words. The first point, all men and women are totally depraved. And by the way, this can be followed using, I believe, what's called an acronym, T-U-L-I-P. T being for totally depraved, that we are totally depraved. We are not absolutely depraved. We're not as bad as we could be. But we are still so much depraved that we are totally incapable of choosing God through our own strength. Point two, we are unconditionally elected, unconditionally chosen not because of any righteousness that we might do, but because of a choice that God has made. It is a free, unmerited grace on the part of God that He chose us. Point three, limited atonement. God provides limited atonement. That yes, the blood of Christ was sufficient to save everyone, but it was only effectual for those who actually received his salvation. None of his blood was wasted, in other words. Point four, his grace is irresistible. If God chooses to call you or me to himself in salvation, we cannot resist the power of his Holy Spirit. Point five, God provides perseverance of his saints, meaning that once we have received his salvation, we cannot lose it. That's also known as once saved, always saved. Now you might have considered that two or three of these points were very close. And they might have seen so. But they all really are in opposition to each other once they're studied carefully. And each concept, please understand this, each concept has been, was then, is now, thoroughly researched within these scriptures by their advocates. The Reformed folks on the one side, the Arminian folks on the other. They are researched carefully. And each side, both, can give firm scriptural proofs to substantiate each one of their points. Now again, this is all tedious for us. Thank you for following along with me there. But I do believe we need to look at these carefully. Now, we probably will not study all of them over the next few weeks, but they are very important to this faith that Martin Luther discovered there in, in Romans chapter 1, that this faith that will bring you and me eternal life. And so we'll consider some of these points over the next couple of weeks. We don't have time today, but I would like for us to consider why Two godly men, and all of those who would follow along with them, who 
truly love the Lord could come up with such opposing beliefs. Now, we, we don't know for sure because there's no historical notes that are actually available to us that I could find. And so I'd like to make an assumption that may or may not be altogether accurate, but I believe it is. And that is that perhaps the men of that day in the 15 and 1600s were very little different than men and women of our day. And in that vein, perhaps their differences were brought on by the one thing that seems to motivate us most here in our day and time. The one thing is feelings. Simple feelings. We read these scriptures regularly. And we do, for the most part, really believe them. But our belief system seems to have this propensity towards corruption when feelings start to get added in to the mix. Now by that I mean, as we read a particular verse of Scripture, if it does not sit perfectly well with the way we feel about a matter, then we quickly surmise that God must have meant something different from the words that we're reading. And we say, surely God cannot mean what it seems that he's saying here. I'll give us an example of that. And then, Lord willing, perhaps we'll spend more time on it next week. This first article, this first point, the one having to do with the depravity of our souls, I believe that I can safely say that most people, even those within our most solid of evangelical churches, like to believe that there is at least some good, a little bit of good, within every person's soul. That is foundational to Article 1 of Arminianism, that there be at least a little bit of good within every person's soul. And those who would believe that reach for those obvious scriptures, those contexts that say, well, after all, are we not created in the image of God? And that image has some perception of good. And so therefore, we each must have at least some good within us. We must have. And it's hard for those individuals to accept opposing scriptures. Scriptures such as Romans 3. Listen. Romans 3 verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Those words just do not make us feel very good about ourselves. And especially about these dear loved ones that we would like to make excuses for. These words are said to be condemning. And they could actually drive a person into, even to the point of depression. Do you understand what I meant a moment ago when I said, when we begin to take the truths of God and then we intermingle in our feelings, the way we feel about that particular point or something going on in our own life that relates to that, it brings corruption to the real truth. And we have to be careful with that. And that's why we're studying these. And I want us to study them carefully so that we can 
understand what God is saying and not a combination of what God says plus what we would like to believe about Him. Lord willing, we'll pick back up on this again next week. I hope to especially for us to study how we can get from this condition of total depravity into this haven of salvation that the Lord has to offer. And so I'll close for today with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray.